Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. Today, I'm talking to Nicole Chung, the editor-in-chief of Catapult Magazine, and also one of the co-editors of the anthology, A Map is Only One Story, which is also out from Catapult. And of course, you can find the full show notes as well as a complete transcript of this episode linked in our show notes. So definitely go check that out. So you may remember Nicole Chung as she was shortlisted for the Reading One Award for her memoir, All You Can Ever Know, back in 2018. We absolutely loved it. And so now she is back as her role as an editor, uh, putting together this anthology, A Map is Only One Story. And this anthology focuses on 20 writers on immigration family and the meaning of home. And I love talking to Nicole about how she and her co-editor, Mensa DeMary, went and put together this anthology and chose selections from Catapult Magazine. So a little bit about Nicole. She was born in, raised in the Pacific Northwest, and her memoir, All You Can Ever Know, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award for Autobiography, was long-listed for the Penn Open Book Award, and named a Best Book of the Year by numerous publications. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Nicole Chung. Well, Nicole, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. Me too. Thanks, Kendra. Well, I first became familiar with your work with your memoir last is 2018, and it was shortlisted for the Reading Award. Yes, so. I remember. I'm so grateful <laughs> for that. <laughs> Thank you. A huge, huge fan. So I'm so excited to talk to you today. But you're here today to talk a little bit about your work with uh, Catapult Magazine. Yes, I'm very excited. So you're the editor-in-chief of Catapult Magazine. What is an editor-in-chief for listeners who may not be familiar with it? Oh, man, that's a really good question. I should have a very good explanation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think it varies a lot depending on the publication and the type of work that they typically publish. But you know, at Catapult, what it means is effectively, I'm in charge of a group of editors who also work on the magazine. So I I very much do not edit everything myself. There's no way I could do that. Um, I have a wonderful team uh, of editors, including my managing editor, Matt Ortile, and associate editor, Mallory Soto, and an editorial assistant, um, Allison Heiji Lichtenstein. And uh, there's also a number of contributing editors, people who work for Catapult, um, in some other capacity as well. So they work for like books or classes, our, our writing program, but also like to edit pieces for the magazine as they have time. And then we have a whole roster of contributing editors um, who freelance for us. So there are like a number of different editors on the site who work with writers. So what I do as editor-in-chief, I read every pitch or every draft uh, as it comes in So to give the final thumbs up or thumbs down, although that makes it sound kind of like a tyranny and really what, (laughs) really what it is, is a discussion. Like it's a conversation because often a pitch will come in and like, we can't quite envision it yet. So it might not be an immediate yes, but like, we'll talk about it. I'll talk about it with, with my editor. They will talk about it with the writer. We'll kind of go from there. And the same thing can happen even when we're submitted like a full draft, right? There can be a lot of back and forth. And once you really get into the editing itself, I sort of like to view that as a chance to have like a workshop with, with each writer, like a mini workshop when we're working on this piece together and trying to make it as strong as it can be. 
So as editor-in-chief of Catapult, I do edit at least usually two to three pieces a week for the magazine. And uh, it is like an editor-first position as opposed to being like all oversight or all like planning or budget. I really, I think like actually working with writers is my favorite part of my job. So even though I'm the editor-in-chief, I have not and probably will never give that part up. I feel like at Catapult Magazine, you know, we have a really great team. It involves a lot of like discussion and like collaboration on everything from the writing to like the art uh, to headlines and social media. So I kind of just think of myself as sort of like the spoke in the wheel, you know, sort of helping to make sure all those different different tasks are are kept on track, that everyone's collaborating and getting something out of the experience, especially the writer. So you sound like you have a very like macro view of everything that's going on. Yeah, I I do. I think like, well, and I do think everybody on the team has a very clear idea of like the systems and the processes. Everyone also has their own like editing process and like philosophy, uh, of course. But yeah, I think I'm, I guess as editor in chief, a big part of my job is having eyes on each step of that process as best as I can and helping to problem solve or helping to advise in any area on any piece when needed. Well, that sounds pretty cool. And you mentioned that you edit a few pieces a week for the magazine yourself. What format does the magazine come out in? Is it print or just online or both? We are digital only, although, um, of course, later we'll be talking about the anthology, which is a book, and we're very excited about it. Um, but yeah, Catapult is, is a digital only magazine. And we publish like daily Monday through Friday, not on the weekends. Okay. So do you, how many pieces on average do you post a day? Um, it's usually for us just like one or two. I would say two more, two is more common than one. So like we'll focus on one piece for the first part of the day and the second part of the day will be focused on like promoting the other piece. It's very much, I mean, it can vary, right? Depending on the week. Sometimes there's more, sometimes there's less. Um, but we do publish like a smaller number of pieces per week than like say obviously way less than a bigger outlet or like a news organization would. I think the reason for that is the work we publish tends to be long, longer form, uh, you know, very literary and just kind of, we don't really, um, have like a huge staff. So, you know, for us, it would be difficult to publish like a huge volume each week. So how long has Catapult Magazine, uh, been publishing pieces? We've been publishing for about four years. So I actually was not with the magazine at the beginning. Uh, the magazine has been part of Catapult since it was established. I joined, like, I would say like a year, a year after that, um, because at the time Catapult was founded, I was still at The Toast, um, which closed in 2016. Catapult was established in the fall of 2015. Yeah, RP The Toast. It was a sad time. I know, a moment <laughs> of my life. So my association with Catapult, the magazine, actually started before then um, because I was a guest editor for a great essay series featuring adopted writers. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, adoption is like a, a, it's an issue really close to my heart and I've written a lot about it. And Catapult offered me the chance to guest edit a series of essays by other writers all focused on this topic. So I jumped at it, even though I was at the time still like full time at the toast, just kind of made the time. And it was a great experience. We published eight essays by adoptees who are also writers. And I wrote a little intro for the series and it was wonderful. And it was such a good experience working with the magazine that once the toast closed, I came on board um, as a contributing editor and then eventually became the managing editor, editor reporting to Yuka Igarashi, who's our founding editor in chief. Wow. That's a pretty great 
trajectory. And so you mentioned already that you now have a, your first anthology from Catapult, um, and it's A Map is Only One Story, 20 Writers on Immigration, Family, and the Meaning of Home. So what inspired you to take some of the pieces from Catapult magazine and turn them into an anthology? We're very proud of the magazine, and I, I really do think of it, and I'm, I'm not the only one who thinks of it this way, but I, I also tend to think of it as like a daily weekly ongoing expression of catapult and our values. Um, I'm just so proud of the writing that is regularly featured. I'm proud of the writers that we've gotten to work with. I'm proud of the editors who contribute. And I think, I don't know if it's from the beginning, but because I wasn't here at the very beginning, definitely by the time I joined, we were talking about the possibility of print anthologies that drew from the archives of the magazine, just as a chance to get the work out there in a new format uh, is really exciting given it's a chance too for the writers, some of whom might not have books out yet or might not have been in an anthology like this before. It's an, a chance for them to go through that publication experience and learn something from it as well. And obviously then just have their work out there in a different way, hopefully finding different readers. I mean, we, we had started talking about the possibility of print anthologies and then thinking about, well, what would this, what would a good theme be, say the first one? Um, and we kicked around a lot of different ideas because I think from the beginning, we realized having just a general anthology where we chose, like, say, our favorites was always going to be impossible because there's so much great writing. Uh, and if we didn't narrow it down by, like, a theme or topic, then it would just make choosing essays impossible. I can imagine. <laughs> the theme is 20 Writers on Immigration, Family, and the Meaning of Home. How did you come to decide on that particular theme for your first anthology? So we were talking about a lot of different ideas for the first anthology, including the possibility of a fiction anthology, which is something I would really love to publish in the future because I think we've published some fabulous short stories, a lot of debut writers, and I I would just be so excited to edit that and publish it. But um, when we were talking about possible themes like uh, immigration and family and community, like these were these were ideas we kept coming back to. Partly because we have had a long-running series called Migrations uh, on the site in the magazine, um, so we knew that was like really a deep well. You know, it wasn't like we necessarily put out a big a big call for these essays. They just started coming in uh, to us and have since the beginning, and it seems obvious as to why. Now looking back, you know, the subject is so important. It affects so many families and communities. And has been for a long time, like so important in terms of national conversation and identity. And it intersects with so many other issues like family, like community, like identity and race and culture. So we had a lot of the essays as part of the series already. And a lot of other pieces actually in this anthology weren't part of that migrations essay series, but you know, they might have been in other series, but they still seem to us to be uh, fitting for this anthology. And we kept coming back to immigration as a focus just because the idea of borders and belonging and like the actual consequences of laws and policies in the midst of that conversation, I think what you see in the stories in this particular anthology is that before it's about any of those things, migration is so much a story about individuals, about their families, about the communities that they leave behind and the communities that they find and that they form. You know, when I was rereading work to try to think about um, this anthology, I was really struck by this line from Jamila Osman's essay, A Map of Lost Things. And she writes, 
you know, a, a country is impossible to contain, a people are impossible to boil to the silt of parchment. A map is only one story. It's not the most important story. The most important story is the one a people tell about themselves. And obviously the title of this anthology is, is drawn from that essay. And I think also I, that for me, that line just kind of set the tone in terms of what this is really about, because we do hope that readers will think about as they read these stories that migration is the story of people before anything else. And you have so many great essays from a wide range of writers and there's even like a graphic memoir type essay in in the anthology which is just so delightful to see i i love that the anthology is so inclusive of different types of uh storytelling and people telling their own stories uh, what was the process of like choosing the different pieces and how did you, did you reach out to the writers? Did you make any changes to the essays for the anthology edition? What was just that process like? This is where the collaboration again came in. And I think one of my favorite parts of the process was also one of the hardest parts, right? When we we're actually trying to pick essays and we originally talked about having fewer than 20. And then first of all, again, it's just so hard to choose among like so many great, great writers. And secondly, it just felt like expanding the number of the pieces in the anthology, which just allows to show like that many more important perspectives, right? So several different editors had edited pieces in this anthology when the pieces were originally published. I think that we had like a group document and everyone who edits had access and everyone could could nominate pieces that they thought should go in an anthology. And honestly, we took and we ended up including most of the ones that people did did suggest. So I think every editor who has ever edited for Catapult or currently edits for us now, uh, sorry, an essay in this anthology, um, you know, unless they came after the the essays were set. So it's it's just been a really collaborative process from the beginning, and I love that like. Not only are there so many like writers that we got to include in this, you know, there are so many editors who also had a hand in it. Each anthology contributor had the opportunity to make any changes that they wanted to make to their pieces um, for the book. Many did not take us up on it. They were happy with the pieces as is, but several did make small adjustments or changes. And so, you know, they all did have the opportunity to do that before we went to print. So a few of them are in like there, there have just been like a few updates or a few corrections, um, but they were pretty small changes. Uh, so the, one of the things I love about anthologies uh, or, or just collections in general is uh, the order in which you read the pieces, because I'll, the way that it's sort of like uh, like a good playlist, like you want the feelings to follow from one piece to another and to flow in that way with its structure. What was the process of just figuring out what order the pieces were going into. And I know this is a very nerdy structural question, but <laughs> I love this question. I, but also I love all nerdy structural <laughs> questions. Structure is like the hardest part of a book and, and writing in general, at least for me. And um, I also really could talk about it for hours <laughs> probably because I agonized so much over it. So it's a good question. So with this, this collection, once we had the, the pieces pretty much set, I was actually the one who sat down and organized it, at least the first draft. And I mean, I just said the process was very collaborative and it was, but like it would have been really hard if six people were doing that. So I said I would take first stab at it. And I was, I'm an editor and as a writer, I'm always kind of looking for narrative, for narrative arc. 
And it's a challenge when you have an anthology with so many different writers and so many different perspectives and styles. Each essay obviously has its own, its own little arc. Um, That's really essential. But I wanted the, the experience of reading the whole book if you do start at the beginning and go to the end, which you absolutely do not have to do, <laughs> you can read in your own order. But if you read from beginning to end, I, I did want it to feel like there was somewhat of an arc, even though obviously these are somewhat disconnected pieces, right? They weren't written with each other in mind. And really it was trial and error. You know, like I went back and forth on which essays I thought could maybe open and which could close. And if one essay the ending of it made me feel like it led well into the next or could be in conversation, I guess, with a with a, a piece that followed or a piece that preceded. Um, I thought about that. So I probably spent a week or two just kind of like moving things around. And then I, I asked for feedback and from readers. And I think we might have changed a couple of things, but I think basically most most of my those early readers were pretty happy with with the order itself. So I hope it doesn't feel haphazard. Like I hope it feels kind of intentional because I was trying, we were trying to think about, you know, how about that order and about like what, how that affects the experience for the reader. I think that's like you said, such an important part is the structure just because you want the pieces to also be almost in dialogue with each other as well. Structure is always my favorite. Um, And I'm always here for nerdy questions about structure. And when I used to be handed a manuscript to make better, I would always start with structure and because it was always a mess. And I was like, well, this is why you can't think of, you know, your ideas is because you're all, you know, you're everywhere. And that was always my favorite part was fixing structure of things. So I'm always here for nerdy questions and discussions about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember really agonizing over that with my book, like my, my memoir, and it was structure is like the hardest thing. When I when I teach workshops, we always end up talking about structure for hours. <laughs> I think it, it's like the, it's definitely the most challenging part, but I also find it like just so rewarding when something clicks into place, and then as you read, it feels kind of effortless, and that's that's one of my favorite parts. And we'll be back with more from this interview with Nicole Chung after a word from our sponsor. The sponsor of this episode is Blinkist. So let me tell you about one of the best life hacks for book nerds. You know, it's hard to find time to read all of the books that we want to read. I don't know about you, but my TBR always seems to be towering over me. Uh, But Blinkist is an incredible app that helps solve that problem. Now, Blinkist is really unique and it works on your phone, uh, your tablet, your web browser, whatever you like to use, it's there for you. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need to know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down to just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. Uh, This is pretty great when you are running to book club and you have uh, not actually finished the book and you would really like to be able to participate and sound at least somewhat intelligent in your book club system. Discussion. You can whip out Blinkist, so pull up the book that your book club has chosen and get the basic gist of what's going on. I really like Blinkist when I need to talk about a book that I've already read as well. I read so many books, sometimes they all begin to meld together. So they have books like She Said by Jodi Cantor and Megan Tui, or Made by Stephanie Land. Both of these books I read last year and but sometimes I just forget some of the details, so I really appreciate how I can go back and review those books and be prepared to talk about them. 
With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books. All the books you want and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com women to try free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash women to start your free seven-day trial. Uh, You can also save 20% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash women. And of course, all of Blinkist's information will be linked in our show notes. And thanks so much to them for sponsoring this episode of Reading Women. So you mentioned your own memoir, All You Can Ever Know. And what was it like, or generally, what's it like for you editing someone else's work versus working on your own? I love editing so much. And in many ways, I feel freer editing than I do writing. I've loved editing from the first time I was exposed to it. I just knew like this, this is great. This is it. This will always be part of my career if I can, at least if I get to choose, (laughs) like, I don't think I could really give that up. There's so much I love about it. Like, again, the collaborative process, having kind of like a a workshop experience, but like one-on-one with the writer. I love how much like editing teaches me. I appreciate and I'm grateful for how it makes me a better writer. I also think, you know, having had to write and revise my own work has helped me. It's given me a different perspective on my editing too. It's funny, like in some ways, I think I have more confidence in myself as an editor than a writer. And I really, truly trust the revision process, which has helped me in my own work because when I feel stuck or impatient with myself or just like, this is the worst thing I've ever written. It's never going to work. I try to remember, like you edit every day. You've seen drafts go from like a good solid drafts, right? To like just beautiful, brilliant pieces of work. Like you should be able to trust this process and trust that you can make it better with time. It is such a valuable lesson and has been hard for me to internalize in my own writing life. And editing keeps that, that truth like ever present in a very comforting way, to be honest. I really love working with writers themselves. I love how it's always different. And no matter how many times you've edited, like a writer, they can always surprise you. No matter how many years you've spent editing, like you can still learn something new. It is just, to me, endlessly fascinating and instructive and inspiring. So that's why I love it. I really love there's that feeling of being sent a piece and reading it and saying, oh, this is amazing. Also, what if we just move this around or what if you expanded on this idea as one of my favorite processes, because usually writers come back with something even better. And mm-hmm. you're just like, what, how, how did you do that? How did you, how did you do what you do? This is great. This is great. <laughs> I have joked that, um, that one of the keys to editing is learning like which very annoying questions to ask (laughs) because you don't always have like a solution. In fact, I mean, usually you don't, even if you do, it's a guess. And ultimately like the writer has final authority on the piece. They, they're the ones who, who will know if it's right and who kind of have to come up with at least a lot of the solutions, but you can really guide that process through the questions that you ask the places where that you highlight and, and put your comments. And it's one of my favorite parts of the whole process is just like my, often my first edit in a piece is 
it's not, I mean, I, before I get to a line edit or anything, any like grammar or anything else, I go through and I sort of, I read and I see like, where do I have questions? And it's always, it's always where I start. So I think that's probably the most important part of the process. I really love that perspective because I think a lot of readers who pick up a book, maybe they'll pick up an anthology like this or, or a longer piece. I think a lot of readers don't realize like what an editor does. And I think that because editors are so behind the scenes, it's often like a mysterious kind of what does an editor do, you know? And so I really appreciate you telling listeners and giving kind of an inside look at that because I think it's often shrouded mystery for people who don't work inside the industry as it were. Definitely. And, you know, it obviously varies a lot depending on an editor's like editing load, um, the things that they're looking for, the like who the publication is aimed at or, or why it exists. Right. So like we have a very different function than like a breaking news site. <laughs> so that's or, or even like a site that publishes like a ton of um, like op-eds or cultural commentary, you know, we're something very different. Not that not that our pieces don't contain their author's opinions or cultural criticism of, of one type or another. But, you know, the focus for us is really at Catapult. It's on the story itself and on like narrative and the purpose that can serve in terms of like helping both the writer and the reader understand something or think about something they hadn't before, you know? So like, we don't really publish, we don't publish like breaking news. We don't publish a lot of hot takes and it's really, we're really kind of focused on the writing itself. And I think that's why we, we have really built in the time. And frankly, we have the luxury to go ahead and spend like weeks if we need to working with a writer on a piece. And it's not at all a chore. Like all of our editors, we got into editing because we like that. We really like that collaboration and we like that process and we, we love working with writers. So, I mean, for us, that's like the point really. So when you're working on this project for the anthology, did you read any other anthologies to kind of see how they were structured or maybe how uh, they were done to kind of give you ideas of how you wanted to do this anthology, especially since this is the first one that you guys have put out? That would have been so smart. I didn't really, um, which is not to say I haven't read and really enjoyed anthologies. I have. <laughs> um, it's more that, you know, we've been putting this one together for like, let's say a year and a half. And so because I was kind of doing it uh, in the margins around like my day job of, of editing and publishing a magazine and also uh, around like things like book tour <laughs> and like parenting, <laughs> I, I didn't actually have a chance to do like the kind of research that you mentioned that would have been really useful. Like as in, I didn't like revisit anthologies I had read to see like, hmm, like how did they structure this? You know, I've had work in an anthology. Uh, I have an essay in the, in the book, Nasty Women, which is a, a large collection of essays. And I remember reading like other anthologies, uh, Rowan Hisayo Buchanan edited a collection focused on like like Asian, Asian immigrants, um, and the diaspora. And I remember reading that a couple of years ago, but I didn't revisit anthologies looking at structure. And that's a really good point. Like now I kind of wish I had, <laughs> I just kind of like trusted my own gut on this one, but, and, and also like the opinions of people that I gave it to, to read, uh, and, and offer feedback, but it actually would have been really useful to, to look at a number of anthologies and see how they were put together totally should have done that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, next time. Right, right. Time. I mean, this won't be our last <laughs> anthology, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, last year, for whatever reason, I really got into anthologies. Mm -hmm. And I just absolutely love them. I don't know why 
I just randomly, yes, yes. And last year I read Our Women on the Ground, which was edited by Zara Hankir, which Mm. is Arab women telling stories from the Arab world. Gorgeous anthology of essays, and even some of them are translated from Arabic. And it was just like, if I hadn't gotten into anthology, I never would have read all of these amazing pieces. Like, Right, right. It's really great. And for me, as someone who primarily reads via audio, when the essays make it into an anthology and then that anthology makes it to audio, it's often the first time that I have an opportunity to focus in and and listen or or read, I guess, with my ears than, you know, when something's on a website and there really isn't an audio version available. So I think also having them in anthologies is a great way for accessibility needs as well. I think so too. And speaking of that, I'm excited because I found out there is going to be an audio book of A Map is Only One Story. Um, I don't have like details on it yet, I'm afraid. Um, but I know, I know one is coming. So I'm really excited about that. That makes me very excited as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was going to ask you actually sometime during the interview. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. No, it's such a good question. It's such a good point about accessibility. So yeah, I, I mean, one thing I wish we had more of is just more audio, more audio components in the magazine. It's something we've talked about a lot and have started to explore. So I mean, stay tuned for more on that. I just also really enjoy that that component, and um, like I love it when I read something and there's an there's like an option to hear the author reading it, which I know New Yorker does for fiction often and places um, will sometimes do for poetry. Um, and I really, I really like that and would love to have that as like a regular part of the magazine. Not that bad by Roxane Gay, all the authors read their pieces. Yeah, that's awesome. And then there was the, um, the Good Immigrant, the U.S. Mm-hmm. edition. Mm-hmm. Most of them read their own pieces in that one as well. So the great audiobooks, they make great audiobooks. Right. You can never get bored when you're hearing people reading in their own voices, like their own stories. You know, it's just like the variety itself, too. It must make for like a very, like a cool listening experience. It it definitely does. And then when you have the author reading it, not only do you have like their narrative voice in the piece, Mm -hmm. but you also have them audibly reading it. So it adds another layer of depth to the essay and Mm -hmm. also emphasizes certain parts of the essay you would have missed if you had just read it in print. Yes, totally. I remember like very much not wanting to narrate my own audio book when my book came out. I'm like some people, like many people, maybe I'm kind of insecure about like my voice. I don't know. I'm not afraid of public speaking and I enjoy reading when like I tour, but I remember thinking like I should not subject people to like hours and hours of my voice reading my book. And I, I really thought the audiobook narrator did a great job. She did, Jen Song, but I I don't have had like some flashes of regret just because I don't know, it'll be a cool experience. Maybe someday on <laughs> a future book or something. Yeah, I really enjoyed the audiobook of your memoir. Thank and you. I thought it was very well done and I was very excited when I found out there was going to be one and I always am nerding out when I finally get the delayed information that there's also going to be an audiobook. So <laughs> it's like I get to celebrate for the publication of this book twice. <laughs> yay, yay. That's cool. Well, before I let you go, um, I usually ask some fun questions at the end, but this one in particular I thought might be appropriate. Um, if you could edit another anthology, your dream project, what would the theme be? And if you could have anyone contribute that you desired, who would you have contribute to that anthology? Oh, wow. That is so, so difficult. <laughs> I have, I mentioned earlier how I would love 
at Catapult, I really, I would really love to, to at least have us print whether I edit them or not, because there are plenty of other editors here who could do a great job with future anthologies. I would love for us to publish a, a fiction, like a short fiction anthology. I just really love so much of the fiction that we've published on the site. That's not quite answering your question, though, because this is like a dream sort of anthology. I'll just say it. I've wanted to edit for a while um, an anthology of adoption writing. I mean, one of the reasons I left it the chance to edit a series for Catapult um, was because, you know, we have more more stories by adoptees now than I than we used to have. Like when I was growing up, it was just so hard to find stories about it from the adoptee adoptees perspective but like I just think we need so many more and that that essay series is still like will always be like near and dear to my heart it would be like it would be wonderful to get to take some of those pieces or or all of them and then also take new work and expand it and have a whole anthology of writing by adoptees from all different backgrounds and and different types of adoption experiences like international and domestic and from foster care and kinship adoption I don't think people realize just how many different different forms of adoption there are and how they differ but I, I just still feel there's such a need for it my book is is one of like you know not very many books I guess put out by mainstream publishing that offer that perspective in in terms of nonfiction and It'd be a great honor to be part of a project that just allowed so many more adoptees to share their stories because we need so many more. Yeah. I think, I think that would be a great, a great resource and a great way for people to tell their stories. And, you know, as you were talking and when I read your memoir, I couldn't remember many stories like this. I'd read like essays, short pieces, mm-hmm. um, little interviews, maybe on podcasts or whatever, but never like a long form piece like that. So it definitely, definitely, I would read it. I would Thank share you. it with the world. So <laughs> if that ever happens, let me know. I will. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be your number one fan. Oh my God. Um, Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing about this wonderful anthology. Um, it's great to learn more about it. Thank you so much. It was really nice talking with you. And yeah, thank you. Thank you for reading women. It's such a wonderful um, community, really, that you've built. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. I'd like to thank Nicole Chung for talking to me about the anthology A Map is Only One Story, which is out now from Catapult. You can find her on her website, NicoleChung.net, and on Twitter and Instagram at Nicole S. Chung. And of course, all of that information will be linked in our show notes. Uh, Also, check out Catapult.co, which is Catapult's website, so you can go check that out. And I will also link her co-editor, Mensa Demary's social media, so you can go check that out as well. I'd like to give a special thank you to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. And you can find Reading Women at readingwomenpodcast.com and on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. And you can find me at KD Winchester. And thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.